Hello, I'm Nikki Gamble, presenter of In the Reading Corner, a podcast about writing, illustrating and reading books for children and young people. My guest today is Burley Doherty, one of our finest writers of fiction. She's a double recipient of the Carnegie Medal for her novels, Granny Was a Buffer Girl, published in 1986, a family saga that looks at the changing fortunes across generations as the city of Sheffield starts its transformation in a post-industrial age. And also for Dear Nobody, published in 1991, a groundbreaking young adult novel that sensitively explores the impact of an unplanned pregnancy on the lives of the affected teenagers and their families. Burley is also the author of the hugely popular novel Street Child and its sequel Far From Home. Street Child is set in the 1860s and it tells the story of Jim Jarvis and his encounters with Dr. Bernardo, who then goes on to establish his homes for destitute children. Burley's written many more novels for teenagers and children, including younger fiction, picture books and retellings of fairy stories and Bible stories. Her most recent novel is The Haunted Hills. And I started by asking Burley what had inspired this evocative story. The story is set in Derbyshire and the actual setting of the story is is a real place called Derwent Edge. And it's an amazing structure, hill, which has a long spine of a hill with incredible rock formations on it and they've got wonderful names like Herkling Stones and Coach and Horses. At the very end of them all there's one that's called Lost Lad Hill and I've always been fascinated by that reference to something I didn't know about. I mean I first heard years and years ago and I wondered who was the Lost Lad. I discovered actually that there is local legend or historical incident about the lost lad. And people don't seem to know whether it really happened or not. But the story as I heard it is that a shepherd boy went up onto the hills to bring the sheep back down during a snowstorm. And the snow got so bad that he took shelter in the stones, in the rocks, in one of these formations. And he couldn't get out again, but he managed to scrawl on the rock the words lost lad in case anybody passing, which was unlikely, would find him. And it was too late. When he was eventually found, it was too late. So that's the story that I heard and uh, was really intrigued by. And when you go up there, and it's a very, very windswept, desolate sort of place, you almost could believe that his presence is there somehow. That's what set me off. And that's why the landscape has such a powerful part. So was that the starting point for this story? Yes, it was absolutely the starting point. I thought originally when I wrote down the story of the lost lad in my own words, I thought I was going to write a series of short stories, short ghost stories set in Derbyshire. But I abandoned that idea and decided to move on to a full length novel in which that legend or whatever it is was the inspiration and is there, but isn't the main part of the story. So let's tell listeners then a little bit more about the story of the Haunted Hills. Perhaps we can start with your main characters, Carl and his friend Jack. 
Carl is visiting the Peak District uh, because yeah. it's something that's happened yeah. to him. His parents think it's going to be good for him uh, to get away. Perhaps take up my invitation there to fill in some of the gaps for us. Well, he's he's in a, a state of shock and grief and guilt. And his, he's been taken to have therapy, but his parents really think that to bring him away from home and let nature take over and see if nature can help to cure him and to be in a place where there's no television, no interruption, just let him heal himself in a way. They're, they're very, very anxious about him and, and I try to portray their anxiety and care for him. And at times he, he is aware of how much they're trying to help him. And at other times, their protection is more than he can handle and he doesn't want it. He wants to be on his own or he wants to be back home. He wants to be with his things back home. So there's always this pull, really, uh, of affection and loyalty and love and disaffection. Just being a teenager, being a 13-year-old who is lost. Another lost lad. Exactly. And and an original title, getting back to titles, an original title for the book was The Lost was Lost Lad. And then I wanted to call it Lost. And then I just hit on Haunted Hills and that stuck. The tragedy that we're talking about, it is gradually revealed through mm. the story. Carl had a very close friendship with another boy, Jack. Yes, he and Jack have known each other since birth because their mothers both had difficulties so they ended up in the special care ward in the maternity ward and so they've known each other all their lives very very close I've got a a grandson I've got seven grandchildren but one particular grandson is so close to his best friend it's a lovely thing to see because you see it in girls a very close friendship you don't see it so often in boys I don't think there's usually a gang of boys or a crowd and he does have other friends but he and his best friend are inseparable and I was so yeah affected by that that closeness that I wanted to try and portray it uh, with Carl and Jack You've already talked a little bit about Carl's relationship with his parents and along with closeness and the love in family comes tension and sometimes you kick out against the things that you know you love the most and you feel the closest to. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you capture so well in this friendship are the moments of irritation and when that friendship appears to be breaking down as well. They're sort of uncertain about their feelings towards each other. Yes, that's right. And, uh, well, there's, there's the distraction of this older boy, two years older than them, who tries very, very hard to break them up. And Jack is kind of taken with this other boy and perhaps flattered by the attention he's getting. And this this is awful for, for Carl. So a lot of the story is about what happens to the friendship and how, as they're growing up, they're pulling apart but pulling together as well and how how complicated it is when you're that age I enjoyed the way that you structured the story the moving backwards and forwards from Carl's present in the Peak District and his reminiscence of his friendship with Jack so gradually we come to understand their relationship and the mystery of the tragedy is revealed how early on in the process did you settle on this organization of the narrative oh I don't know that this story has been been going for a few years when I first knew what I was going to actually write about I went to the local uh, secondary school 
Hope Valley College and talked to a group of boys and they were about 15. And I met one of them again just yesterday by chance at his mother's house and he's now 20. I couldn't believe it. It's taken that long to write the story. So it's been through three major drafts. So at what stage that occurred, I can't quite remember. So Carl is taken under the wing of a local farmer, Al, who looks out for him. Now, we've already mentioned that Carl's parents are trying their hardest uh, to support him, but sometimes help has to come from outside the family. And I found the scenes between Carl and Al particularly moving and tender. There's one scene in particular where Al is teaching Carl the old craft of dry stone walling. I got a sense of your appreciation of tradition and perhaps even a sense of grieving for the things that are being lost. And then there's Al's backstory, and he too has his own ghosts. Well, yes, Al's friend. And Al is a a typical, I mean, I live next to a farm. We're surrounded by farmers and farmland here, which is wonderful. And so it's great for me to watch what happens on a farm. I see it every day. And Al, in his gruff sort of way, is is not at all heavy handed, but is is, uh, incredibly sympathetic towards the boy, yes, and tries to help them in his own way because of his own experiences. So up in the Peak District near Edel, which is a gateway to the Pennines. To the Pennines, yeah. 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 You must have things like abandoned stone houses. I mean, I remember when I used to do those walks up to Kinder Scout Mm -hmm. and how otherworldly it is. And when you come across a stone building that's in a state of decay and you've got trees growing in the Mm -hmm. centre, it's so evocative. Oh, yes, incredibly. And it's very sad and wonderful at the same time to walk around some of these ruins. I mean, there's one very near to where I live. And it's almost like a haunted house, really. You can just feel the presence of um, people who worked there and who had their homes there for hundreds of years. And now it's just empty and crumbling. And there are lots of barns, lots of unused barns, which fortunately are inhabited by barn owls (laughs) more often than not. And yeah, the fields are scattered with them and some are maintained well and occasionally in use, but some aren't. Some are just sinking into into the earth. Do you think there's something about an old building that hasn't been restored that sparks something in your brain that can take you back to the past so much easier Mm. than if you see it, even if it's been restored to what it might have looked like? Somehow the ruin of it is more powerful. Um, Absolutely, yes. Uh, You get that in old castles, don't you? It's, It's much more exciting and dramatic and atmospheric to look around an old castle with a crumbling keep than a restored one absolutely mm-hmm. yeah you mm-hmm. really do get a sense of the past and there's something about the desolation of it all so let's talk about ghosts oh right <laughs> uh, it's not the first time that you've written a ghost story no it isn't what, what do you think is the appeal of the ghost story i don't know i think it, it's very strange because I don't know if I've ever seen a ghost or if I actually believe in ghosts, although I have felt an extraordinary presence once in a place. But I think it's the same with fairy stories, with magic, that we've got myths and legends that come from the past. There's a sense of, of not just being ourselves, but of being part of something, part of history, part of hundreds and thousands of years. We're not on our own. And then 
I don't, I don't like to call it a spiritual awareness, but it's maybe simply the imagination. But I think we all really do have it. And perhaps some of us nurture it and enter into it more readily than others. Robert Westall once wrote about the ghost story and its connection to landscape, which yeah. is what I feel your ghost stories are. Mm. Um, I sometimes tell a story myself, uh, you know, a personal story of my godmother who had a farm uh, near Settle in Yorkshire and she was renovating her farmhouse. Mm. She took down some of the internal walls and in those walls, there were, you know, how they used to put objects in the walls, yeah. like a shoe and a mirror and a hairbrush and all that kind of lock of hair, mm. that kind of thing. And they found these things in the walls of her house. And she used to say that after that, up on the moors, when the weather was bad, she would always see figures walking towards the house and then mm. they would just disappear. Yeah, that's rather lovely, isn't it? Yes, I think, well, with the company of ghosts and the haunted hills, my two ghosts, if you can call them that, in those are not malevolent. They're not wooey-wooey, scare, you know, jump out at you and scare you, frighty. Uh, but they're they're wanting, well, I don't know how to describe it, really. They're I wanted a sense of, of a real person. In both stories, you get to know the, the complete history, those two characters. You've got some wonderful artwork on the jacket. I certainly have. We should, we should talk about Tamsin's artwork. How does this reflect your story? Well, the covers are absolutely gorgeous. The house is amazingly similar to my house, but she hasn't been there and she hasn't seen it, but a very typical Derbyshire stone house. And so as soon as I saw the cover rough, I thought, yeah, that's, that's home. And the, the setting is quite right. And the beautiful touches that she's made, apart from the colour, which is stunning, she's put those ghosts that you can see and can't see and, you know, they're there. And yet your your eyes drawn really to the house and the glow that should be a warm, friendly house. And mm-hmm. then there's the hills, the crow, which appears a lot in my book, and a skylark up above somewhere. Anyone who's heard the liquid warbling of the skylark as it rises and then falls back down to the moor will, I'm sure, have the sound imprinted on their auditory imagination. The lark is an important bird in this story. Owl teaches Carl to identify its song. And in one of Carl's memories, we learn that Vaughan Williams' lark ascending really moves his friend Jack. Musicality, I think, is a quality that I associate with your writing uh, music is often referenced in the stories, but I also think that your prose is very rhythmic. Thank you. That's that is something that I aim for. And actually, when I I speak to children about writing, I always advise them to read their work out loud. At the end of every working day, I read aloud to myself what I've written because I want to hear the music of the line. And if it doesn't have a kind of melody to it, if that makes sense, then it's not right. If I stumble over the words, then it's it's not right. It hasn't got the right cadences in it. You know, I think that might come from when I first started over 40 years ago, I was writing uh, for radio stories for radio and plays for radio and I think that voice that out loud voice is still has remained to me the very important feature of a book even if it's going to be read silently. I certainly feel when I read your stories aloud that it's effortless Uh, the text is really supporting me. Because I also write or have written libretti for, Mm. for 
operas. I mean, obviously, I don't do the music, but I, I write the songs in it first, and it goes to the composer. I sing it to myself, even though I've no idea what their melodies would be. You know, they say it uh, mm. it helps. Well, it doesn't help them, but it's they say it's it's almost there. I'm guessing it's an intuitive process rather than the one that is worked out. It is totally intuitive, yeah. One character that we haven't talked about is April, Farmer Al's enigmatic farmhand. What can you tell us about her role in the story? She's a strange character, isn't she? I don't know how she developed why she developed in the way she did. But I grew very fond of her. Uh, I don't like walk-on parts at all. So I try to to introduce a character and develop them in some way. And April, she's a mystery, really. Carl thinks at first that she, she lives on the farm. She's a farmer's daughter, but she's not. And she doesn't want to talk about her past. The farmer doesn't know about her past. She just turned up one day. But she knows the countryside. She knows the hills. She has this kind of affinity with nature. And she cares for Carl, although she has her own kind of abrupt way of seeming to mock him. She really, really wants to help him. And I just try to bring that across. She's a few years older than him, but not much older than him. But in a sisterly sort of way, she tries to protect him and tries to help him. And yet at the same time, she scares the life out of him sometimes or makes him really annoyed because of the way she behaves. There's something, isn't there, about these characters who are not instantly likeable, mm. but actually do the right thing and don't make a show of it. Al the farmer is like that. And the fact that mm. he allows her to sleep on the sofa, but he says at one point, there's a room for her here. If she asks for it, but yeah. we're not going to tell her because we don't want to frighten her away. I'm paraphrasing, but basically yeah. that's what he's saying. Mm. And what a wonderful, sensitive response that is from somebody who on the outside probably is pretty gruff and yeah, yeah just gets on with life. So you seem to like those characters. I do. <laughs> yeah. It's not the first time as well that you've written about places that are local to you. Mm. Do most of your stories arise out of what's around you? Um, Not necessarily, but certainly I have written a lot of books set in Derbyshire, um, not always defined as being books about Derbyshire, and sometimes they're set here in my valley, but I don't always name it. Books like The Snakestone is Mm -hmm. actually set in this valley, for instance, and The Holly Starcross and quite a few of the farming stories for children uh, are set here very firmly. And it is an inspirational area. I mean, why write about anywhere else when you got here? But uh, I mean, I do go elsewhere in my imagination, but it's, it's usually somewhere that I know. I usually like to feel familiar with the place. And then I think perhaps the, the reader will also feel familiar and at ease within the pages. Which reminds me that there's another place that you write about in the Haunted Hills, which is Cornwall. I felt that possibly you had a passion for Cornwall. Yeah, well, I go there a lot. Yes, I know the area of Cornwall that I was writing about very well indeed. Mm. Oh, yeah, there's something about the colour of the sea there. It's just incredible. Well, we're not going to reveal what happens in the story because we really Mm. want people to read that for themselves. But Mm -hmm. what they can expect is such a fine eye and a fine ear, a wonderful classic storytelling 
voice, characters that we care deeply about, authenticity in the relationships between characters and a story that is going to tug at the heartstrings too. So thank you so much for joining me in the Reading Corner, Burley. Such a pleasure uh, to talk to you. Oh, thank you very much. I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed talking to you. <laughs>